Welcome back to the podcast. My name is Philip, and I'll be your host today. If you're just tuning in, this is episode four of our second season of our podcast, this season dealing specifically with the book Emotionally Healthy Spirituality by Pete Scazzaro. Last week, we worked our way through chapter three, which uh, is all about going back in order to go forward. I was joined on the podcast by a good friend of mine and a lay elder here at True North, Mike Ottenweller. And Mike and I had about an hour long discussion of what is probably one of the more challenging uh, and confrontational chapters in the book regarding where we come from, our relationship with our parents and our family of origin. And then the decisions that that leaves us with, where will we go from there? So this week we'll be working through chapter four, which is called The Journey Through the Wall. It's subtitled Letting Go of Power and Control. And I'll just remind you, as I do every week, that this discussion, uh, the one that you and I are going to have, because I am coming to you solo today, uh, this discussion is not meant to replace or summarize uh, the chapter. It is meant to supplement the reading that you're doing on your own. God willing, even if you've been unable to join us for an in-person book club, you've found somebody maybe in your life who either has read this book in the past or is reading it now, and you've been able to discuss certain pieces of the puzzle uh, with them in addition to just reading through on your own. I will share with you a general thesis idea from this chapter, basically the the assumption that we'll be making as we head in to the rest of the chapter and, and sort of the idea that we'll be pushing against or that we'll be going along with, and it's this, that all of us will reach a point as followers of Jesus, where we will have to deal with what Pete calls the wall. He even capitalizes the word wall to let us know that it's a point of particular emphasis. Uh, His idea is that if we're going to be emotionally healthy in the way that we practice our spirituality, that we can gain at least a partial roadmap from Scripture uh, and from his perspective in this chapter on how to navigate that, but that ultimately we will have to go through the wall on our own, our own version of the wall. No one can go through it for us. And as we do that, our lives will be transformed. So to open the discussion today, and this is about where Book Club began as well, Uh, on Monday. Our our group on Monday actually ended up meeting for about two and a half hours. So for those of you who came, you'll remember that. And for those who didn't, maybe that sounds like it was a good week for you to stay home, but I would argue that it was probably a bummer to have missed out on that really rich conversation. It seems like several of our folks who have been working through this book, um, along with me and the rest of us, are carrying specific baggage that was brought up in chapter three and has kind of helped them realize now in chapter four that they themselves are at some kind of wall and have to make a decision about where to go from here. But the chapter tries to lay a little bit more of a foundation. It doesn't bring us right to the wall, but it does explain to us that our Christian uh, discipleship journey, what we at True North refer to as apprenticeship in the way that we follow Jesus, that it usually happens in stages. And I don't know how much Christian spirituality or discipleship material you, the listener, have read in your life, but I have read a lot, uh, probably more than I wish that I would have. Um, this idea is not unique to Pete Scazzaro. Now, I will say the model that he gives at the top of page 99, if you're in the paperback version, uh, that that particular model comes to us from a book called The Critical Journey, Stages in the Life of Faith, which was written by Janet Hagberg and Robert Gulick. Uh, or Gulich, however you say that. Um, not every other book agrees that there are specifically six stages. Some people would argue that there are three. Others would say four, five. I've seen as high as 12. 12 seems to be 
a number that we in Christian circles like to use. Um, I think that the six stages as presented by the Hagberg-Gulick model are pretty accurate, especially considering the function of this model. So if you have your book in front of you there, or if you're on the ebook, you can look as well. If you can consider that stage one is basically when you meet Jesus. Now, depending on your, I'll use a theological word here, soteriology, you probably have a different perspective on who took the first step in your relationship with God. You might see God as having lovingly and uh, by his own choice offered you the option of approaching him or not, having laid out uh, his presence and identity in the way of nature, as Paul says in Romans 1, as well as uh, special revelation of scripture or the gospel being shared in your life uh, by other people or a program or a book or something like that. Or you may feel that uh, God preemptively took the first step in your life and introduced himself to you and somewhat even made the decision for you that you were going to belong to him and you needed to figure out what to do with that. I think the Bible certainly leaves room for both interpretations and that's not an argument we're trying to have on this podcast, nor is it one that we could probably settle for you even if it was a topic that we were addressing specifically. The point is this, at some stage of your life, to, to steal from this diagram's language, you gained a life-changing awareness of God, if you are a person who would call yourself a follower of Jesus. Something happened, you felt, you sensed that your inner life made contact with God. Uh, again, either he made contact with you or you approached him and he was open and willing and ready for that. But either way, something happened and you went from a person who had heard about God, a person who maybe had been exposed to the things of God, the church of God, the language of Christians, the Bible, to a person who said, okay, I don't know necessarily even what happened, but I used to be on the outside of this thing and I can tell now that I'm on the inside. From there, the very natural next stage is stage two, discipleship, the idea that we would begin to learn. What does this mean? How did it happen? Why did it happen the way that it did? Why me? A lot of times, really elementary level doubts will arise where we'll go, oh, well, the more I learn about God's mercy and grace, the less that I maybe assume that it can apply to a person like me, or the more I begin to understand the deep roots that sin has in my life, I, I gain some doubt or some misunderstanding of how God's grace works, or if it's strong enough to save a person with problems as big as my own. But regardless, that's a stage where we begin to dabble maybe in some spiritual disciplines, some prayer, some journaling, maybe some scripture memorization. We begin to attend classes, very possibly, whether it's a youth group or it's a children's ministry or it's a men's adult Bible study or a Friday morning small group or it's the teaching of a local church. But of course, we should. We begin ingesting ideas. We begin having our minds changed. This is part of the repentance process where we lose our old way of life and our way of seeing our old life, our perspective, and we instead embrace a new perspective, a new way of seeing and experiencing life no longer alone, but now with God. Uh, by way of the Spirit of God. From there, stage three is beginning to serve. We take the things that we've learned in stage two and we act on them and we become the evangelist in the life of another person. We become the servant, the hands and feet of Jesus on behalf of uh, those who need mercy in our community. Now, the argument that Pete is making and that I think is true is somewhere after that, somewhere after we reach the point where we've probably gotten plugged into a local church, we've established what our regular learning rhythms will be, our discipleship rhythms will consist of, for instance, an accountability group, a life group, a monthly men's breakfast, in my case, and um, maybe there's an additional something like book club that I'm going to throw on my plate as well. And so I'm ingesting a lot, and then I'm going to serve. I'm going to serve in kids' ministry, I'm going to help prep coffee on Sunday morning, I might show up early to help park cars or hold doors open for people. Once I've kind of got those things nailed down, for many Christians, that's it. That's the whole show. We live that Christian life in perpetuity until our physical life on earth 
is over, or we have a crisis of faith and we walk away from our Christianity, though one would certainly hope that that's the exception and not the rule. In Pete's model, we've only made it halfway, if that's as far as we've made it. And I agree with that. I think that that's very true and is uh, a profound reality that many of us have never even been introduced to, let alone invited to confront in our own lives. Pete's argument would be, based again on this Hagberg-Gulick model on page 99, that somewhere between that stage and the next stage, there exists a wall, and that that wall probably is stuck pretty close to what he refers to as stage four, the journey inward, where our Christianity is no longer uh, filing new ideas into the filing cabinet of our mind. It's no longer finding enough ways to serve that we feel justified in our faith, or we feel that maybe God is getting a good return on his investment is oftentimes the way that I think we think about our service in the church, but that we've realized that what Jesus wants to do in us is a lot bigger than changing our behavior, rescheduling our week, getting onto our calendar a couple more times than he used to be, and even more than just changing our minds or our way of thinking, but that as we begin to do that, if we take our Christian discipleship process and we make it more than just learning, and instead we begin to actually ingest ideas and concepts that maybe are not um, easy or or are not uh, shallow, they're deep, they're, they're challenging to us, they require us to self-evaluate a little bit our own habits, our own patterns, our own way of life, that that's the journey inward. And that the journey inward is designed uh, by God to give us an opportunity to get to know ourselves. And as we get to know ourselves, to be confronted with the roots of the symptoms that we've been taught to deal with previously. So probably somewhere in stage one or two or three, as part of the teaching, as part of service, we've been held to a new moral standard by a church. We've, we've been told things like, well, you can't teach kids at this church unless you're a member. So we say, well, what do you have to be to be a member? And they say, well, you need to be baptized. And so we go, okay, well, I'll be baptized. And then they say, you need to sign this covenant. And so we read the covenant. And we go, oh man, that is going to require me to change a few things about the way that I live. Okay, I'll make those changes. The journey inward is different from that process in that it, invites us. It almost demands that we not just deal with the bad behaviors and the bad habits that we've had, but we start asking ourselves, where did those habits come from? Why am I motivated to behave in the way that I have been behaving? What does it say about me or my family of origin, right? It's sort of along the lines of chapter three, that I've become the kind of person who can be discipled in some sense, who can learn, who can begin serving, but can keep the same character more or less that I gained on my spiritual birthday, the, the point where Jesus saved me, a few things changed right away, and I haven't really budged an inch past that point. What does that mean and how can I do that? And what Pete would argue is, is before we can find those kinds of answers, we actually lose a lot of what I'll call sort of the trappings or the decorations of the Christian life. We find this sense of loneliness uh, that we don't want to confront and that very few people in our church settings talk about. We, we find that there are really valid arguments and hard questions about the Bible or the history of the church or the nature of spiritual leadership and who has it and who doesn't and why. And so sometimes instead of getting answers to those kinds of questions, we find ourselves hitting what feels like a lull or a plateau, or in this case, what Pete would refer to as a wall. In the natural building of these stages upon each other, there comes a point where we're moving from about stage three to about stage four that something very challenging happens. And what Pete will say later in the chapter, and I'll read a couple of quotes in just a minute, is that it typically comes to us in the form of a crisis. And I would agree with that based on my own experience personally and what I've seen happen in the lives of 
other Christians as a pastor, as an elder and shepherd in their lives. But I wanted to read a quote on page 99 before we get that far, because I think there's two elements in play in this chapter that we're invited to interact with. The first of which is the wall itself, simply acknowledging that this is possible and then moving from that point of view to eventually being able to admit, I would hope all of us would be able to admit, that this is actually normal and and maybe should even be expected in the life of a person who's growing in Christ. I think that's the case, but you may not be convinced quite yet. So that's one element is just that the wall is there. It's coming. It's real. We'll have to deal with it. But then number two, what's really, really necessary to acknowledge is the answer to the question, why is this uncommon in Christian circles? Why don't we talk about this very much? Why don't you hear about this in your baptism class that you took as a kid at your big evangelical church after you prayed the sinner's prayer at summer camp? Why? What's making this, causing this to be missing? Well, I think Pete would say it's a choice. It's a choice that lots of Christians have made over lots of years in which, and this is the quote from page 99, he says, we can stagnate very easily in our journey at a certain stage, and we can choose not to move forward in our journeys with Christ. So it's a choice that keeps us from going through the wall. If we refuse to, he doesn't say if, he says, we refuse to trust God into this unknown, mysterious place, and instead we turn inward into ourselves. And here's the key, and he quotes from Mark 4 as a kind of a reference for where this idea is coming from. Our soil ever so slowly becomes hard. It's important to remember that while we may identify with more than one stage, or even if we find ourselves in transition between them, we will still tend to have a specific quote-unquote home stage that best characterizes our life of faith now. And then he begins to work through, at the bottom of page 99, these six stages. Now, I've already given you my assessment of the first three, so I'm going to jump to number four. And I want to just kind of read a quote from stage four, stage five, stage six, and then we'll continue to move on through the chapter. But Paul says that it's, excuse me, Paul, Pete says it's important to notice that the wall itself and the journey inward, stage four, are very closely related. It is the wall itself that compels, or I would even use the word propels us into the journey inward. I think that similar to if you followed um, a preaching series that we did at our church recently about silence and solitude, There's a wall that appears in that practice as well, where we reach a point where we have to just sit and wait and as best we can practice contentedness with our present reality. We can't just go, oh, it's going to get better eventually and I'm going to get there. We have to reach the point where we stop waiting for and longing for and counting on that quote unquote getting better eventually and we embrace the now, which may feel negative to us. It may not feel good. It may be painful. So I think it's going through that wall that can propel us into a place where we can journey within ourselves because what has to happen is all of that service that we learned, that we jumped into in stage three, that used to make us so happy and give us such a great serotonin loop in our brain where we would serve people and they would say thank you and we'd go home and go, I made a difference today. I feel so good about myself. I think that uh, we've that's got to wear itself out to where it's no longer really, well, we realize that it never was all that effective anyway, but it stops giving us that Uh, that high, that feedback loop, I think then we kind of go, okay, well, I'll go back to number two and I'll just learn more. Maybe I just need more information. I'll read harder books by guys that have been dead even longer than the ones I used to read. And that doesn't do it for us. Eventually, we lose our ability to impress ourselves and others with our newfound knowledge. And so I think that pushes us back to stage one. At stage one, we go, I feel like I need to have that life-giving interaction with God again, but I don't know how to do that, and I'm not even sure if I'm supposed to. And, and church listeners, I'll be honest with you, I think that's the process. I think it's very linear. That's the process that leads so many people within evangelical churches to be, quote-unquote, 
rebaptized to quote unquote rededicate their lives. This is especially bad in churches that have been traditionally, theologically, philosophically Southern Baptist. Uh, we've been so interested in generating decisions that sometimes we don't question the process. We don't question uh, the participant. We just wait for them to raise a hand, bow a head, pray a prayer, and then we sign them up and consider it a done deal. And oftentimes I think that churches don't have the inability, I'll say more than, more than often, typically churches don't have the ability to guide you through the wall into stage four. And so that natural progression and regression just repeats itself. You meet Jesus initially, you begin to learn, you start to serve, you hit the wall, you give yourself over to service, so then you it doesn't work, you push back into learning more, that wears itself out, you go back to this sort of simplistic, milk-based diet of Christianity, and probably when you go back to stage one, you might even switch your theological tribe. You might go from the Reformed camp to the Charismatic camp, and then once you get in the Charismatic camp, you're going to go stage two again, stage three again, you're going to hit that same wall because it doesn't exist out there, it exists inside of you, and then you're going to come back to stage three, you're going to go back to stage two, you're going to come back to stage one, and you're going to switch your tribe again, and then you're going to go Bible church, and then you're going to go Vineyard church, and then you're going to go Elevation church, and then you're going to go Hillsong, and then you're going to go Charismatic, and then you're going to go Eastern Orthodox, and then maybe you're going to dabble in Catholicism, and then you're going to go Reformed Baptist, and then you're going to go Presbyterian. And what we keep doing, if we live this pattern, is we keep approaching ourselves, and we get scared, We don't know what to do, and no one seems to have the language or the tools to help us navigate it, and so we actually walk away from us. That's what's crazy. We're not walking away from God. We can't. The book of Ephesians makes it clear that all the spiritual riches that are are ours, all the heavenly rewards, all the, the, the benefits of eternity, a restored life, the fruit of the Spirit, these things we have... Um, they've been purchased for us and essentially have our names written on them. Whether or not we decide to participate in that is up to us. But it's not that we're moving toward and away from God. I want to be really clear about that. That's not the point that Pete is making, and it wouldn't be wise uh, for you to consider that to be the pattern of your life as well. The thing that you're approaching and then walking away from is yourself. It's, It's your true self. Yourself as it actually is, yourself as God sees you. And what you've learned to do is you've learned to um, mask or avoid or escape from who you really are, what's really going on inside of you, what motivates you, your fear, your past, your future, whatever it is that keeps you frozen. You've learned to navigate around those things instead of facing them by making yourself busy at church, by learning more and better Bible teaching tools, maybe even by finding a way into some ministry leadership yourself. Now, eventually, I believe that if you're in even a a semi-open, semi-spiritual Christian tradition, a church that has some language for the Spirit of God to move and work in your life, eventually God's going to confront you with this. And not in a mean way. I don't mean confront in the sense that he's going to surprise you like an intervention, but you you walk in your living room and there's Jesus and there's the Spirit and there's some angels and all your dead relatives and God the Father, and they're all looking at you and saying, you've been running from us long enough, it's time to face this. I don't mean that at all. I mean that God will confront you with this because your life will demand it. Living your life as a grown-up will put you through enough crises that eventually you won't be able to outserve your pain, you won't be able to outlearn your questions, you won't be able to out... Uh, manufacture experiences with God or switch churches enough to escape this sort of looming shadow of who you really are. And so it's there that we begin the journey inward. And when we get to that inward journey, we begin to change who we are. Our character is transformed. And this is sort of where the gray area between stages four and five exists. Because if you're Paying attention, stage five, the journey outward, looks a lot like stage three. 
And stage two, it looks like a lot of the same kinds of actions. It looks like putting others before yourself, sacrificially giving of your time and your resources, finding ways to mentor and teach those who are younger in life or younger in the faith or just need a helping hand. But the motivation behind those things is totally different. And the sense of security that you gain as you begin to journey outward, having really faced yourself and realized that God will accept you and keep you close, even if maybe <laughs> if you were in his shoes, you might reject yourself, you know, if you were him. But I want to read this quote. This is off of page 100. Uh, I've read the book a couple times and I underlined it both times. And then one time I wrote an exclamation point. So I know I was trying to tell my future self, this is big. Read this. So I'm going to read it to you. He says about stage five, we may do some of the same active external things that we did before, and then he gives examples. We may lead, we may serve, initiate acts of mercy, etc. The difference is this, that now we give out of a new grounded center of ourselves in God. That is a very dense sentence and concept. I'm going to say that to you again. The difference between who we used to be and who we are now is that now we give, we used to give before, but now we give out of something new, a new grounded center of ourselves in God. How can that happen? Well, he says we've rediscovered God's profound, deep, accepting love for us. We've rediscovered it because we probably knew about it at stage one, and then we lost it in all the learning and all the serving. It got muddy. It got gray. It wasn't good enough. We didn't hear about it that much at church. Other Christians didn't talk about it. Pastors didn't preach about it. And so we just kind of lost sight of it. And when we gained a religion instead of gaining access to God personally, but what we do is we rediscover God's profound, deep, accepting love for us. And here's what will happen. Now a deep inner stillness begins to characterize our work for God. And then finally, we arrive at stage six, which I think is probably aspirational for the majority of us, unless you're listening and you're in your 60s or 70s, you probably haven't uh, cycled long enough that you've reached the point where you can actually let go of all the things in life that want to drag you down and cause you to stumble and just be with God. Um, I think that it's really interesting that Pete leaves that as last, but then also iterates that it begins to blend back into stage one and we often begin the cycle again. So the point for the remainder of our time today, for the next 20 minutes or so, is just to navigate and chew on the wall. One really seventh of this process. If there are six stages and a wall exists between two of them, then of course there's really seven stages because the wall itself is something that has to be dealt with. And here's where Pete begins to get very specific. He says on page 101 that for most of us, the wall appears through a crisis that turns our world upside down. And then he gives a very long, very devastating list that I'll allow you to read for yourself. But as a result, he says, we question ourselves, we question God, and we question the church. We discover for the first time that our faith does not appear to quote unquote work. And I'll just tell you from having been in book club on Monday and Tuesday, this was a real point of conversation. Interestingly, uh, especially so among our staff on Tuesday. Our staff all kind of imagined a scenario in which they would have to admit to a spouse or a friend or someone in a life group with them that even though they work at the church, that there, there would be seasons, there have been seasons for each of us where our faith did not quote unquote work. And what we mean by that is our faith was not able to immediately comfort us. Our faith was not able to platitude or band-aid away the pain, the crisis, the loss, the grief, whatever it was that we wanted to avoid and that we instead had to work through. Pete goes on to say, in this case, we have more questions than we do answers as the very foundation of our faith feels like it's really on the line. We don't know where God is. We don't know what God is doing. We're not sure where he's going. We don't know how he's getting us there. And we have no idea when this will be over. And then Pete gives some examples of what it took for him to reach the wall and to realize how he needed to work through his own wall 
what I can say to you is having been through a couple of walls myself that I can identify in my life, uh, part of his, one of his last sentences on 101 where he says, I finally went forward through the wall because the pain of staying where I was felt unbearable. That has proven to be true for me time and time again. Uh, many times I have found the strength, I guess would be the word for it, even though really it's kind of weakness, but it's the, it's the willpower is what I mean to stay stuck, to not deal with the thing that needs to be dealt with until finally the stakes are so high that I go, even if this wall destroys me to have that experience would actually be better than to just sit here and avoid this and dodge it any longer. Um, especially as a married man now and a father of a child, I've begun to learn to see the effects of the negative things in my life, the inherited traits, the sinful tendencies, the wicked patterns, the selfishness. And when I act on those things, when I panic, when I freak out, when I rage, when I'm really big mad, it's not as simple as I'm embarrassed and I wish I wouldn't have done it. Now there are ripples in the pond that affect two other people and potentially affect my daughter in a way that is shaping and forming her into who she, she will be someday. And so it's actually become easier for me with time to come up to the wall and face it, to deal with it, to name it, and to work through it. Because I understand that by staying there, I'm not staying neutral. I'm choosing to participate in these really negative patterns until finally I've done enough damage that I'm fed up enough that I go, all right, I'm going to try to work through this wall. On 102, Pete says that when we make it through the wall, we no longer have a need to be well-known or successful, but instead we gain a need to do God's will because we've now tasted what it means to live in union with the love of God through Christ in the Holy Spirit. We've learned, as Paul says in Philippians 4.12, the secret of being content in any and every situation. But what happens when that's not the case? What happens if you're like me a couple of years ago and you've confronted several walls, but you've never made it through one? You've always gotten discouraged, you've walked away, or it seems like life has changed too much too fast for you to have a chance to get a foothold and really embrace and engage with this change um, on purpose by way of your own will. Well, the way that that feels and the way that that sounds uh, is probably best illustrated by a list of, I think, of seven or eight points that Pete makes at the top of page 103. He lays out that when a person is emotionally healthy, uh, they're able to admit these things. But if you're not emotionally healthy, maybe you can't admit them, but you're probably still at least self-aware enough to be able to identify that one or two of these realities exists within your inner life. For instance, Pete says, maybe when it comes to your faith, you are bewildered. Bewildered meaning you have no answers. You don't know where to turn. No one seems to be able to help you. And maybe you can't even describe your experience in a way that allows someone else to help you. Number two, healthy faith admits that I don't know what God is doing right now, but even unhealthy faith probably can acknowledge times when that's felt and you don't want to say it out loud. Number three is the reality that you are hurt. Four is the reality that you are angry. Five is the reality that much of what you're experiencing is a mystery. It doesn't have an explanation. You can't seek out the source. You don't know where it came from, why it's happening or where it's taking you. Number six or seven, excuse me. Yeah, it's six is that you're sad, especially, I think, for men. Christian men who grew up in youth group culture, who go on mission trips and try to love their families and take you know, leadership in their home very seriously, sometimes don't know how to say, I feel sad, and I don't think it needs a solution. I think I need to just be able to say that I'm sad. And then finally, number seven on this list is a question, and it's a question for God. It's asking God, God, I'm experiencing that you've forsaken me. Why? Why have you done that? Why do I feel like this right now? Why am I having so much trouble with normal, typical patterns within our relationship? I'm still trying 
to read my Bible, I still want to pray or I want to want to pray, maybe is a more honest way to say that. But I'm not doing these things. And, and if I'm trying to go through the motions, I'm not connecting well and I'm frustrated and I'm discouraged and I don't know where to go from here. What do you do if that's your reality? If you've come to the wall, but you don't see a way through it. Uh, Pete summarizes this whole experience on 103 by saying that our good feelings of God's presence evaporate. Um, and, and that as those good feelings evaporate, we come face to face with our own wickedness, with our own pride, with our sense of avarice, just a, a general discontentedness that we have with what God's given to us. We become wrapped up in luxury. We are more worried about the pleasures that we can gain from the spiritual blessings of God than God himself. We become confronted why, by how easily we're irritated that we have little patience to wait on God or other people. Uh, we are confronted with our sense of spiritual gluttony, that we don't want the way of the cross. Instead, we want only what feels good and what seems to look nice and what scores us good Christian points at church and at life group. We become aware of our spiritual envy, that we are always comparing our spiritual state to other people, that when and where we hear other people talk about their time in silence and solitude or their practice of prayer or the way that they read their Bible with their spouse, we can't celebrate that for anybody else. We only see it as a measuring stick against ourselves, and it always turns out that we're failing, and the way that we process that failure is by generating hatred for the people that we feel like are beating us, even though God did not set this thing up as a competition. And then finally, sloth, that we just become passive. We aim more at what we might call spiritual sweetness or good feelings, and we run away from things that are hard in our life because we just don't want to engage. We feel too tired. We don't know that we have the tool set to do it. No one's ever invited us into this process in their life for us to learn. They've certainly never shown us how to do this. Now, I want to make note of a positive because that all sounds really bad, right? If I'm going to go through the wall, I'm going to learn all this junk about myself. Maybe I don't want to. But I thought a really helpful note and a point of emphasis happens at the bottom of page 104 where Pete clarifies. He says, in chapter two, we discussed the critical importance of paying attention to our feelings in order to know God, right? That was the chapter where we talked about knowing God better by way of knowing ourselves better. He says, but the dark night of the soul, as opposed to that idea, actually protects us from worshiping those emotions. And I think that that's one of the more common idolatries that's found in the spiritual life, he says, and I agree with him. Uh, this is important to me because, at least in our in-person book club setting, when we sat down to discuss uh, the, the first and second chapters, there was some resistance. And I, it made sense to me. It didn't make me mad. I don't think it made anybody else angry. Um, but there were a, a few folks who said, you know, I am very emotional already. When I'm reading a book about emotional spirituality, it seems like, you know, early in the book, all he's really driving at is that we need to get in better touch with our feelings. And I already am in touch with my feelings. A lot of the presence of discipline in my life is actually resisting following my feelings. So is this book just going to sort of reset all of that for me and, and create a system or a set of expectations that other people have for me where now I'm just going to be blown to and fro by the wind of my feelings? And I think that's why it's important to take this whole system, because that's what Christianity is, to take the whole system together. I think that probably early in our journey, especially if we've come from churches that have taught us that we ought not ever even acknowledge our emotional state, yeah, probably some of the work that we need to do is to soften up and just be able to admit that we are emotional creatures and that that isn't a bad thing in and of itself. A little later on, God's going to bring us to the wall. We're going to follow him there because he's going to take us deep within ourselves to do the work that needs to be done that only he can do, the work of transformation, metamorphosis. And once there, and once we've gone through this dark night of the soul, which is typically a very unemotional, very challenging experience, 
we will gain by way of that dark night of the soul insulation. We'll gain insurance, safety against following the whims of our emotions because we'll remember a time where we had to stay close to God and trusting of him even when the emotional feedback wasn't coming the way that we are maybe used to it happening. I want to go forward a little bit in the chapter. Um, There's a a couple of great passages where Pete writes about his own experience with his wall, where it came from, what brought it to him, uh, the feeling, the the experience of it, I think is worth reading and just finding some, some consolation in. Um, He moves on on 106 and 107 to discuss the idea of how long the dark night of the soul is going to last. He sort of lays out two what he calls levels, what I'll call categories of the dark night of the soul, which is one is sort of more short term and, and maybe is typical. And then the other is really challenging and deep. And he even quotes from John of the Cross dealing with how violent and severe that process can be. But then after moving through the wall, the remainder of the chapter is Pete laying out what's on the other side for us, what's on offer if we are willing to go on this journey with God and really with ourselves, with the part of ourselves that we would probably rather not admit exists. So I want to just tap each of these four one time, and maybe I'll stir up some ideas for you, the listener. Maybe I can encourage you to to take some of these concepts with you into prayer with God, into your time of quiet with him, that God willing, you're practicing you know, in a perfect world every day, but probably a few times a week uh, as it comes to your mind and you make it a priority. Um, the first is that we gain a greater level of brokenness. And that's a symptom. It's a way that we know that we're making progress through the wall to the other side, even though it is a very slow and challenging work of transformation that we can't control, that we have to trust and leave in God's hands. Um, I want to read just the beginning of that section. Pete says, Christians can be notoriously judgmental in the name of standing up for truth. But people who have gone through the wall are broken, like characteristically broken. They have seen, as Karl Barth notes, that, quote, the root and origin of sin is the arrogance in which man wants to be his own and his neighbor's judge, close quote. Before we go through the wall, we prefer to exercise the right to determine good and evil rather than to leave this knowledge to God. And afterward, we know better. Now, I think Pete's using that language on purpose because he's echoing the original sin of Adam and Eve. The rebellion of Adam and Eve was really, really bad on a cosmic level because when they ate of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, they were attempting to take from God the authority to decide what is right and what is wrong. And you and I are are experiencing this in real time right now as we watch countries all over the globe, not just the United States, grapple with what authority do parents have over their children's bodies? What authority does a man have over his wife? What authority does the church have over its members? Uh, What authority does the government have over the churches within its nation? There's always this tug of war and grappling where we want to take terms that we know and redefine them so that they make it easier on people who used to be outside the camp. They kind of get brought in because the rules have changed. But as we do those things, as we distort those things further and further, what we find is we put ourselves in the seat of power. God has spoken and he's spoken clearly by way of his word regarding what he believes is right and wrong, true and false, good and bad. When we do mental and language, linguistic gymnastics to try to redefine terms and language to make more people feel better about things that are actually really awful for them, we've not served anybody. The way of love is not to redefine the rules. The way of love is to leave the rules to God and to live a life of love. And yet many of us have believed the lie that by stepping into the arena of redefining words and terms and categories that we can somehow change the definition of who is following Jesus and who is not. 
The second factor that will begin to appear in our lives as we work through this, uh, what we call the wall, the stage that exists between learning and growing and actually beginning to go within ourselves and, and be changed on a characteristic level, will gain, number two, a greater appreciation for what Pete calls the holy unknowing, uh, what's probably easier to summarize as just the sense of mystery. Um, a quote from early in this passage is when Pete says, the problem is that God is beyond the grasp of every concept that I have of him. He is utterly incomprehensible. And then he counters the immediate argument that if you're like me comes to mind. He says, yes, God is everything revealed in scripture, but he's also infinitely more. God is not an object that I can determine, that I can master, that I can possess, or that I can command. And still, I try to somehow use my quote-unquote clear ideas about God to give me power over him, to somehow possess him. Unconsciously, and this is true in my life and has been for a long time if I don't fight against it, I make a deal with God that goes something like this. I will obey, I will keep my part of the bargain, and now, God, it is your responsibility to bless me in return. Also, do not allow any serious suffering into my life. As we work through the wall, we lose that. Uh, we, we gain this new sense of openness to God being whoever he wants to be. And not again, he's not going to break the rules of Scripture, but the God that's portrayed for us in the Bible, it's just that. It's a picture of who he is. It's a portrayal. It's his own portrayal, but it's as effective as any autobiography would be written by any person. It just simply cannot encompass every waking moment of that person's life, especially given that God's life is eternal. You can fit 80 years in 40 or 50 pages if you have to, or four or 5,000 pages if you want to get into a lot of detail. You cannot fit the infinite life of an eternal being like God into the pages of any book. They don't make enough paper. So what we have to do is come to God with an expectation that's been set by Scripture, an introduction that's been made by the Bible that frames God's character, and we should expect him to be similar and never break the rules or expectations that he's set for himself in the Bible but we also can't say that God can only ever do only what he's done in the Bible forever and for all time. He is free to act as he wills, and he really is unique in that sense. The ultimate knowledge we can gain about God, to echo Thomas Aquinas, one of the church fathers, the ultimate knowledge is to know that we don't know everything about him. That's the most satisfying reality that can land within our minds for us to just embrace that we're never going to be able to predict God perfectly. He doesn't follow our rules. He doesn't work for any of us. He's not bound to any of our church buildings or honestly our denominations or tribes or movements. He does what he wants when he wants to do it. And when we get there, we gain a childlike deepened love for mystery, not just a willingness for mystery to exist but we understand how good and beautiful it is that God cannot be contained on paper or by science or in our minds, that he is bigger and larger and exists in, a, in such a way that we can't comprehend until we can experience it perfectly in eternity. Number three, we gain a deeper ability to wait for God, which is in a way kind of a no-brainer, but is also ironic. As we wait at the wall, we learn how to wait at the wall. This is a very hard thing for us to pick up from anybody else in our lives, we have to do this on our own. We have to get back up on the bicycle without training wheels, and we have to be willing to fall and get back up and fall and get back up. We don't have the advantage of a dad running alongside us, holding us up until we get a feel for it. Uh, people can explain it. We can read about it. Even this chapter is doing its best to prepare you. But at some point when the wall arrives, it will be you and God, and you will decide, am I going to get back up on the bike or am I going to walk away? and regress back into stage three, and then two, and then one, and, and begin to embrace the process that I explained earlier. Number four, and probably the one that I think is most beneficial to people who work in ministry, so I can say that this was the most impactful for me, 
is a greater detachment, uh, a sense of freedom gained from living at the wall, that as the pain arrives and as the harsh realities arrive and as we have to face who we really are, the stakes go way, way up and lots of little things like pleasing people and making sure that everybody's happy around us and never rocking the boat and never having an unpopular opinion, these things begin to fade. We don't become belligerent. We don't become harsh. We don't lose the character of Christ. We actually gain more of it at the wall. These things like, Pete gives a list on 114, uh, marrying, experiencing sorrow and joy, buying things, using them, these things in themselves are not our lives. We are to be marked by eternity, which means we live free from the dominating power of things. Now, hear me clearly. Don't take this last piece of the podcast and go, oh, finally, a, a practical step I can take. I am not telling you that you need to attempt to live free. That's not the point of the chapter. It's not the point Pete's trying to make either. Living free will be a symptom that will come if you will go through the wall. When we put our claws into something and we don't want to take them out, we've lost our ability to enjoy those things. Now we have to have them and we've lost our choice of whether we will or not. So listeners, I'll leave you with this. I thought that the list from Richard Rohr, the five realities, the five things that are totally true for you in your life, were arguably the most helpful part of this chapter. I mean, other than just knowing that the wall is real and what you've experienced is legitimate and you'll get to the other side and it will be good for you. I think if every believer would, would find a way to integrate these five realities into the way that they think of themselves and the world, even just once a day, I think we would have a lot less conflict. I think we would spend uh, almost no time on things that don't matter. I think we would be focused, clear about our mission, and excited to engage with God. Those five realities are this, and I believe that they're true. First is that life is hard, so I probably shouldn't expect it to be easy, and I shouldn't get upset when it goes poorly. Number two is that you are not that important. So that means that you can listen to other people. You can be a teammate. You can defer and you can step back and you can say, maybe I don't know what's best. Maybe I should listen to someone else. Maybe someone does have more expertise or a better perspective than I do. Number three is that your life is not about you, which means you don't have to fight with anybody. The purpose of your life is not to continue your life or to better your life or to propagate your life or to multiply your life. Your life is a resource that was given to you to spend on something else. This goes sort of where we've been in our sermon series dealing with the longings of the human heart. We long to be free, but really what freedom is, freedom is the opportunity to choose how we will spend our lives. What will we commit them to? Who will we serve? Number four, you are not in control, so you don't have to act like it. And when life proves that you're not in control, you don't have to get angry and be reactive. You can simply go, oh, there's even more evidence of what I already knew to be true. And then finally, you're going to die, which leaves you with a question. If there's a finite number of minutes between where you are today and when your body goes into a box in the ground, how do you want to spend that time? Do you want to have that petty fight with your spouse? Do you want to get all over your kids back because they're five minutes late for bedtime? Do you want to attend all those extra meetings and attempt to wiggle your way into a promotion that nobody's promised you? What really matters to you? What goes on to eternity? I would argue that it's the things that shape your character and the character and personhood of the people around you that offer you the greatest opportunity to make an eternal investment in the world around you. So that concludes our discussion today on chapter four of Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, The Journey Through the Wall. Next week, you can look forward to an episode with me and hopefully someone else, a co-host here to help have the discussion with me where we'll talk about chapter five of Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, a chapter entitled Enlarge Your Soul Through Grief and loss, subtitled Surrendering to Your Limits. Listeners, I hope this has been an encouragement to you and a help as you've navigated this great book by Pete Scazzaro. As always, uh, we'd love to hear from you if you have any feedback, whether that be clarifying questions about a statement that I've made or something that's come out of the book. 
whether it's a concern about the direction of the book or maybe a new idea that you're struggling to grapple with based on your previous faith tradition or even maybe a teaching that you've considered to be orthodox or, or at least ironclad that this book may call into question. If you have any comments in general, if you have any concerns you want to share, questions, anything like that, you can always contact us at our email address. It's info, I-N-F-O, at truenorthalaska.com. Last thing here, I want to let you know that very soon this podcast stream, which is currently titled and labeled as the 10th and L podcast, this is going to be going away. Now, that doesn't mean we're going to be ending book club prematurely, but after a lot of discussion and brainstorming, we've decided to take the other podcast stream that hopefully you're connected to that contains all of our sermon audio, and we're just going to turn that into a general digital resources stream. So you'll be able to find all of our sermons there, as well as the book club podcast episodes. We will retroactively upload season one of this podcast, which contained lots of different discussions, topical ideas, mailbag episodes, interviews, things of that nature, and you'll be able to find future versions of those all in one place. So moving forward, make sure that you are subscribed to the Sermon Audio Podcast. Be on the lookout for that to change its name to True North Resources Podcast. Uh, For the rest of season two, we will continue to upload our book club episodes here to this podcast stream. So don't worry, we're not going to move that over on you out of nowhere. But beginning in the new year, we will no longer update this stream and we will eventually be taking it down. Uh, In the meantime, we will begin to upload book club episodes both here and to the other podcast feed, which is currently sermons only, but won't be soon. I hope that's clear. If it's not, Just hang in there, follow along. We'll be making this announcement at the conclusion of our episodes for the rest of this season. Uh, And yeah, hopefully the book's a blessing to you. Uh, Let us know if you want to give us any feedback. And between now and next week, I hope things go well. And we'll talk to you soon. Thanks. Thanks.